You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 2, Episode 15. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holfe, Canadian Immigration Lawyer, broadcasting from my firm here, Stringham LLP, in the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. In this episode, I had the pleasure of catching up with Ravi Jain, who is an immigration lawyer practicing in Toronto. And uh, the topic that we're going to be discussing today is parental sponsorship. And based on the date that I'm hoping to get this podcast released, which will be the day you're listening to this, um, it will be very well timed because we are on the precipice of one more year of immigration lottery, and that is the parental sponsorship process. So Ravi jumped on to join me to talk about that awesome topic, and um, we will go to that interview in just a few minutes. However, I wanted to share a few things with you, and it's my podcast, so hey, I can do whatever I want, right? Well, I want to vent today. As many of you know, and as I've spoken about in the past, I have, uh, over the past year, ridden my bike to work, which is not something that I'd traditionally done, and so every day, if you've ever been to the lovely city of Lethbridge, Alberta, where I live... The city's divided into two halves. There's a west side and then a downtown. And our office is downtown. And it's probably, I don't know, about a 10 kilometers or something ride. I can't remember from my house downtown. And uh, I get a ride through this river valley. And it's it's a phenomenal workout. And it's been a part of my practice since really joining Stringham here in Lethbridge. And uh, on the weekend, I got my dang bike stolen. <laughs> so I am really ticked and I have been sleuthing the past week trying to figure out if I can find find out who stole it and and how to get it back. Lethbridge isn't a big place. So I reached out to my buddies on the force and they've got a lookout going and uh, uh, you know you spread things out through Facebook and so other people have been giving me leads but all of my leads have run dry. So Friday is my deadline and today is December the 13th. And so that would make, I guess it's Wednesday today. And so Friday is my deadline. If I can't find my bike by then, I'm going to have to break down and buy a new one or get a used one or something to carry me through the winter. But uh, I just thought I'd let you guys know that even in the lovely city of Lethbridge, there are jerks that just can't keep their grubby hands off of other people's property. Now, with that being said, in fairness, I did make the decision when I was working here late on Saturday and I was exhausted and didn't want to make the ride. So I left my bike in the firm's parking lot, which is, it's got a fence around it. And I cabled it through the frame and the tire. But that that uh, that particular uh, cable obviously wasn't strong enough because they took some bolt cutters and split it in half and basically destroyed our, our firm bike rack, <laughs> getting my bike out, my nice little Kona Caldera mountain bike. Anyways... 
So that has been somewhat of a frustration for me. So I thought I'd share that with all of you guys. So if you see in your area all over Canada, a nice uh, gold Kona Caldera (laughs) mountain bike for sale on Kijiji or one of the other um, Craigslist type, uh, um, you know, buy and sell sites, please reach out to me because I will hunt them down. All right, enough venting for that. Um, I also wanted to share a few things um, with you about some listener comments and feedback that I received. And I love it. It's great when you guys reach out to me and you give me feedback on ways to improve the podcast. So right off the bat, uh, shorten it. So it's a long podcast. Sometimes it's up to an hour or longer. And so some people have said, hey, try and make it a little bit shorter. And some of the tips that they've given me is uh, not to spend so much time introducing a guest before I actually go to the guest and then reintroduce them all over again. So that was a really good tip. So that one you'll see in this podcast, I've cut that out. And then um, uh, someone also made a comment that I say awesome a lot. And I think I alluded to that. And uh, Ronna Lee Carey in her podcast Eh, she's the source of the feedback. And so I'll give her props to that. And so I've really been making a conscious effort not to say, hey, that's awesome, 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 after every response from my guest. So I am really working hard to clean that up and uh, get rid of some of those little, um, I don't know, nervous kind of uh, filler things that we do when we're public speaking. So I'm going to remove awesome as much as possible unless something is really awesome then i'm gonna say awesome all right so thanks for the tip ronnie on that one and um and basically a lot of people have have been asking why i'm not pushing out more podcasts and in fairness they're they're right like i said it's december the 13th and uh, i am this is episode 17 that i'm going to be doing here with ravi or that you're listening to and uh in fairness i pumped out way more last year and so many people are asking well why is that what's going on mark are you still doing your podcast and i think Chantel deloge asked me that and uh, which is all fair because I was turning them around fairly quickly. Well, here, I'm going to take a few minutes and I'm going to tell you guys what I've been doing. And I think some of you who know me have heard um, about some of my little ventures and things that I've had going on. Some of you are probably horrified <laughs> by some of the things I'm doing. But let's face it, I am, I'm running basically an immigration practice from Lethbridge, Alberta, okay? So I'm not in a larger center. I'm not in a large city full of uh, various ethnic populations where, uh, or, you know, on the, individu- on the individual side. And I'm not in a large major center where there's a lot of uh, business immigration work, which has traditionally, f- you know, funneled my practice. And so I've had to be creative. So those of you who are judging me, you can not judge me anymore. You can come live in Lethbridge. And I made a choice because this is where I want to raise my family, which is great. But I've had to do some creative things to keep the work coming through my door, to keep myself relevant, and uh, basically to sustain my practice while things here in Alberta um, are not going as well as they were when I first started my practice. And so from an economic standpoint, there just isn't as much action here in, in the fine province of Alberta. So I wanted to share with you guys some of the things I'm doing, and maybe it might give you some tips and strategies, and maybe some of you guys are already doing these things. But um, this is why I'm not pumping out as many podcasts. So first off, I'd just like to give you some statistics. And I'm sure some of you are kind of interested. Um, in association with this podcast is the Canadian Immigration Podcast website. And um, every month I get a little over 20,000 visitors that come to that site. And uh, 
in conjunction with the actual site, I also push the podcast out through iTunes and uh, the podcast itself, um, the various episodes get approximately, well, I get approximately 4,000 downloads. At least I'm on pace for 4,000 this December. And that's pretty amazing given the fact I've been so sporadic. And so for you listeners who've been tuning in and patiently listening and waiting uh, for new episodes to be released, thank you. Because it's a miracle that I am, and this is actually, it looks like we're on pace for a record month once again. And so um, it, it kind of leveled off. And, and now that podcasts are starting to come out again, I'm finding that there's a lot of listeners that are actually listening to this. So, so thank you for that. All right. So that's the podcast. Now let's shift into some of the other things that I'm doing. Facebook. Okay. So I've got a friend who, you know, had a little bit of experience with Facebook and marketing and things like that. And he said, hey, why don't you create a private Facebook group? So I thought to myself, all right. I need to do something to be in more of a niche. So I didn't want to just create um, a Canadian immigration Facebook page. It was too broad. So I decided and made a conscious effort at the beginning of this year to really focus and hyper-focus on express entry. And being here in Lethbridge, there's not a huge volume of appeal work um, or federal court work, obviously, um, there's not a lot of business immigration. And so we do a lot of spousals and, and I do do work permits and LMI based work permits and things like that. But I thought, you know what? Express entry does not require anyone to be here. And so the world is my target. So I created an express entry law Facebook group just to identify that it's law and ideally a lawyer. And, um, excuse me. So so I created this group. Um, the beginning of the year is when I really started to push uh, a little bit more emphasis. I put a couple thousand dollars into uh, Facebook marketing, just to, the, the AdWords, just to get out. I shouldn't say AdWords, but paid Facebook marketing to, to get out to um, a few different potential um, people that might be interested in it. And since that time, this little site has grown to about 83,000 people. And it's a private group, so... Anytime um, a consultant comes in and starts to peddle their wares, I block them and kick them out. <laughs> and, and it is designed for people to share and to, you know, converse and ask questions and get answers. And, and I spend a boatload of time going in there to um, answer questions. And I also, every Tuesday at noon, do about an hour-long Express Entry Live Q&A on Facebook. And, uh, and so I've been doing that, which has also obviously helped to, to grow. And uh, so these efforts, um, this whole world of content marketing has resulted in a lot of people now contacting me th for specifically express entry assistance. So that was one of the ways that I've been able to, to kind of grow my practice in a different way. And, uh, um, and so with that private Facebook group, not everybody's on Facebook. So now that it's grown to a pretty large critical mass, I'm now starting to spin the videos into YouTube. And they're hosted on something I call the Canadian Immigration Institute, which is a separate little venture that I've been doing. And that kind of falls in line with this whole access to justice, but at the same time, helping me to uh, find ways to increase revenues to my uh, my firm. And so this Canadian Immigration Institute is designed, and much to some of your horror probably, uh, to create a series of do-it-yourself do guides. And 
Generally speaking, I think most of us lawyers recognize that the vast majority of express entry candidates want to do it themselves, hire a consultant, or just basically rely on um, a lower cost offering, if you will. And so I decided, you know what? That's a big market and I want to try to tap into it. So I created an express entry, do it yourself, complete step-by-step guide, a, a literal screencast tutorial of, um, of the whole process. And so currently that's the, the first course that I've created that's up on this Canadian Immigration Institute website. And if you go to CanadianImmigrationInstitute.com, you'll see it there and it's starting to grow. And associated with that, I have a Facebook page and, you know, it has about 21,000 likes on that page and, uh, and a lot of my podcasting and other resources will get spun onto that open, you know, business Facebook page. And, uh, and then the uh, Canadian Immigration Institute um, has, like I said, its own YouTube channel that I'm now starting to spin those videos out to those express entry live videos. I call them EE live Q and A's. And so there you have it. So I've got all these things that I'm doing and you can imagine how long it takes to do all this. And, and, uh, uh, but I've just had an amazing time. It has been so fun. And some of you are probably wondering, oh, you're, aren't you afraid of giving legal advice and these kinds of things? And, and in fairness, I answer general questions. And if anyone wants specific advice regarding their unique circumstances, then I push them back to my firm contact page and to engage me as, uh, um, as their, you know, to get a formal, formal legal representation in place. And then, um, what I've offered with, with respect to express entry is a lot of unbundled services. So, you know, there's a gold and a silver and a bronze plan and a consult. And then coupled with all of that is the, the course. And so, um, I've done all of those things to try and grow my practice. And so some of you new immigration lawyers that, um, are just kind of getting started and are wondering how to get your name out there and do different things. And you can feel free to check out all the stuff that I've got going on and ask any questions. I've, I've always been more of a collaborative soul. And, uh, and I know that there's a lot of consultants, even locally here in Lethbridge and, and, um, and many of you obviously that are listening to it right now. But if you ever have any questions, don't hesitate to send me an email to mholthy uh, at stringham.ca, S-T-R-I-N-G-A-M.ca, and I'm happy to answer any questions and uh, share kind of the little venture and experience that I'm going through here. But anyway, so those are some of the things that I've had going on. Some of you may wonder, why the heck am I listening to this? I could care less. I work in this big, massive firm. My practice is so busy now. I don't even have time to market because I don't need to. Well, you guys are awesome. That is fantastic. (laughs) Congratulations. But for the rest of us who have to work a little bit harder, those are just some of the ideas and some of the things that I've had going on. And uh, yeah, I think they're, I think it's kind of fun. So anyway, so that's a little lead into why I haven't had as many podcasts out as I'd hoped. And now I'm going to stop talking and rambling on and jump to my fantastic interview with Ravi Jain. Well, I'm here with Ravi Jain. I'm uh, really pleased to have him back again. He is um, a managing senior immigration lawyer with Green and Spiegel in Toronto, Ontario. Welcome back, Ravi. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So Ravi, this is his second go round here with the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I was very fortunate to have him come join us uh, back on May the 25th um, of 2016. So last year, 
And that was in season one, episode 17, if you want to track it down. And we talked about the Canadian spousal sponsorship process. And uh, any, right. anyone who's doing those kinds of applications, that podcast was awesome. It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ravi just gave a ton of helpful, helpful tips, uh, tips and strategies on how to basically uh, avoid some of the most common pitfalls that people had. And so I would strongly encourage any of you that are in the process of filing spousal sponsorships for your clients or you yourself, really go back and listen to that episode because you'll get a lot of great insight that will help you. So we are back at it again, Ravi, and we're also within (laughs) the family class to some extent here. But Mm -hmm. today we're going to chat a little bit about parental sponsorship. So maybe... um, you can give the listeners just a little bit of a, an overview. I think most people get how it works, but maybe you can just give a, a little quick crash course on on what this is all about. Sure. And Mark, I would just say, you know, like you're so enthusiastic and it's such a pleasure to be on this. And, um, you know, it's always a pleasure to try to share information so people um you know could just have a, a better sense of, of some of the different types of programs immigration is running. Um, but yeah, uh, absolutely. The, and I'll jump in Ravi. Yeah. And, and as the listeners can clearly see, there's a reason why I have Ravi coming back because anytime mm-hmm. someone's there patting you on the back, Oh yeah, you've got to get that. <laughs> <laughs> you've got to get that person back on. So, <laughs> but it's great to have you back for sure. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> so the, anyway, the parental, um, program is, is a very popular program. Uh, in 2011, the inventory on this, um, peaked around 165,000 individuals. So uh, that led to some some seriously increasing processing times. And uh, obviously, there was a situation where the annual intake was was sort of exceeding uh, the admission space. So in November uh, 2011, the government at the time, uh, uh, you know, basically had a temporary pause on the whole program. Uh, they introduced the super visa. Uh, which allowed people to come in where they weren't necessarily interested in permanent residence, but they they did want to uh, come and visit for up to two years at a time, uh, you know. And essentially, they just had to pay for some private medical insurance and and meet the standard um, low income cutoff sort of threshold, uh, and and then they were able to get super visas. So and and you know the intake. The uptake, rather, was was fairly high, and the success rate was fairly high. Yeah, I understand that the approval rates on those are actually quite quite high. Yeah, they are. So you know, so it's an interesting way to um, alleviate the fact that there just wasn't a pathway to permanent residence. Um, and now, um, well, in 2014, the program reopened. Uh, initially, there was a cap of 5,000, and the the new government, the Liberals. Uh, ran an election and said they were going to increase it to 10,000. And uh, initially they didn't, but then when it got some press, they sort of retroactively did increase it to 10,000 in 2016. Uh, and that also maintained at 10,000 for 2017. Now, the issue was that um, in 2016, you know, you had to have your application ready and, you know, at the courier uh, depot. And if, if, um, you were sort of late in the day, then you might not make it in the um, under the cap. And so the thought was that they would change the process and um, rather have first come first serve. Uh, 
you know, they would basically randomize it. And, and so, Ravi, I'll jump in. I know we, we played that game with one of our clients. Yeah. And, and of course, in, in those days, they said, you can't just drop it off yourself. You have to use a, a courier. So all mm-hmm. kinds of these creative little private courier agencies <laughs> surfaced. Mm-hmm. And uh, we used the traditional route. And fortunately, we were able to get through that year. And we had one, uh, one um, applicant, one sponsorship that did go through. But mm-hmm. sadly, the applicant um, uh, ended up contracting cancer and, and passing away. Gosh. And so, um, yeah, so th- th- those were crazy days. And I know that it created a lot of uh, um, frustration and anger from people who were trying to get in because it just, yeah, it just seemed so unfair. So then, like you said, then they decided to do something else. Well, right. And I think a lot of uh, concerns those, um, you know, arose with the new process because under the old process, I mean, you know, if if you are, you know, lawyer was diligent, you know, and, and prepared all the application forms and, you know, it was right around the holidays, right? So we had to be quite organized and manage people being away and everything else. And, you know, I remember bringing home a stack of these things and mm-hmm. a courier company came to my house uh, and then they went from my house directly. So, so you know, these are sort of the advantages of obviously hiring lawyers who are, you know, aware of what the, you know, what all the different ins and outs are with an application. So, so our, like I actually had all of mine approved under the old system. Mm-hmm. Under the new system in 2017, when they decided that it wasn't, you know, they wanted to make it more fair and more randomized. Unfortunately, what ended up happening is that, you know, a lot of people, way more people um, applied than were qualified for. So they had 95,000 people applying for these 10,000 spots. Um, you know, and there were real issues, uh, with that, but just to back up for a second, um, in terms of the processing time, I just want to go back to 2014 around that era, you know, and at the time they, they didn't stop processing, um, you know, inventory like those who had applied previously. So even though there's a temporary pause in 2011, uh, they kept processing parental applications uh, and they processed quite a few, like over 20,000 a year. And uh, there was, they were the old ones. Uh, but by limiting and put, putting a pause on new ones coming in, it meant that they gradually were able to bring down their inventory from about 60,000 in around that area, um, you know, which, which was significant because, as I said, it was 165,000 in 2011. So they brought it down to around 60,000 a few years ago. Um, and then because they were processing just over double what they were taking in. So they're processing over 20 and they're taking in, you know, just 10,000. Uh, this led them to pretty much get caught up with, with things such that in 2016, the cases I had that, you know, we applied for the parental category were actually processed within a year. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now for 2017, we, our files are still in process. So they, they haven't, maintain that processing um, standard, which which surprises me because, you know, you're only taking 10,000 in. Why can't you process 10,000 when you were processing 20,000 for the last several years? So uh, it is a bit troubling to me that they, they're a little slower this year, but, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. So anyway, so just uh, so the, the new the new process, though, when I say it's randomized, 
the problem is, what do they ask for? I mean, they ask for your, your first and last name, your date of birth, your country of birth, your home address, your postal code, email address. Basically, that's it, right? Yeah, you're so going to the local trade show and putting your name and address in hoping to get, uh, you know, uh, yeah. this, this random prize. <laughs> exactly. That's about it. <laughs> but it's like, it's it's just, you know, it's like your name. I mean, like, yeah. it's, the, it's the most basic of information. So they didn't actually screen. And of course, you might say, well, do they have the ability to screen? And the answer is yes. I mean, just look at the economic categories, express yes. entry. Mm -hmm. Where you build a profile and, you know, you you have to, there's consequences. If you, you know, choose to rely on a profile that's not correct, then they can get you for misrepresentation and bar you for five years. So in this process, there's really, there were really no consequences. So we had people, I had consultations where people said to me, you know, um, I want to try to sponsor my parents. So I filled out one and my wife filled out one. And I said, what do you mean your wife filled out one? Your wife filled out one for her parents? They said, no, no, my wife filled one for my parents. So, that, you know, they, they, there were these people that yeah. took two spots when they really only should have had one. And then another yeah. person I remember said, well, you know, I worked in the States uh, for one of the three years. Um, and I worked like 90% of the time in the States. And you can't count American income. And they didn't, the 10% of the Canadian income just didn't meet the threshold. And they said, oh, we just figured we'd apply anyway. And, and I think, that, you know, that's one of the things that we're going to talk about here, but that is probably one of the single um, most common reasons for rejection as a sponsor is, is uh, being able to demonstrate income. Exactly. So, I mean, this is where it was very frustrating, you know. So, so you had 95,000 people apply. They picked 10,000. And then the thought was, okay, wait a minute. Um, you know, you've picked, you've picked these people. Um, clearly a lot of them are not qualified. Uh, how are you going to address that? And I actually ended up writing to them, uh, in June, I believe. And, um, and asked the immigration department, I said, look, it seems to me that it's June, 2017, the, and I wrote to them and I said, and I was a little political in my email. I said, you know, <laughs> you promised 10,000 people and you know, you're not going to be able to keep your promise. And, and, you know, when it comes to federal elections, one of the issues that always surfaces vis-a-vis immigration is always parental sponsorships. Uh, for some reason, it's, it's always a, a hot button issue in the ethnic communities. And, you know, people want to sponsor their parents. And, and so I said, you know, you promised 10,000, you're not going to make it. And so they ended up writing back to me and I think to one other person, uh, another lawyer, and we both um, shared it with all the other lawyers. And basically, they, they said, okay, it looks like we are not, in fact, going to meet it, and so we're going to have to do a new draw. And so that's what they did. So, um, you know, they did another round in, in, I think, April with documents due in August, and um, and then another one in September with documents due in December. So, so you know, it's a bit embarrassing, right, that you have to, um, you know, keep, keep uh, doing these draws yeah. because – you know, there's just so many people that apply that clearly didn't qualify. And just to clarify for listeners too, so basically this one month period where we had to submit the applications, it was these draws um, were being pulled from those those applicants, so it or those uh, candidates, I guess if you will. So it's not like they opened it up for people to submit new applications. They just had held all of these other expressions of interest, if you will, mm -hmm. um, in, they, they pulled from that. And that's, that's how it was set up. Is that not correct? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, so at the end of the 30 days, uh, the initial one, they, they removed the du duplicates and, um, and chose 10,000 people, asked them to complete the full application. And then they realized that a lot of people just didn't apply, mm. you know, and, or they clearly didn't qualify. Yes. So then they had to do this other round 
and he given you know uh, 90 days to submit. So, so this was the the issue. So, um, so that's kind of the history of the program. Uh, that's a bit of the. I mean, I guess we can get into the criteria if you want. Yeah, let's do that. Let's let's yeah, let's hit right down to that part to uh, how you figure out whether or not you can actually do it. So, and I think the. I mean, the answer is there is that it's tricky because there's two different tables. There's the low income cutoff tables, which you could find on the the immigration department website. And then there's the tables that are specifically designed for this category. And they are specifically designed for this category because they're grossed up by 30%, right? So um, they look at the last three years and we can get into the, you know, what that means because there was some, you know, there was some litigation around that yes. issue. Yes. But essentially they look at three years. Now, a lot of people, um, you know, they, they, they miscount. So they forget to count themselves, you know, and then they just count the people they're sponsoring or the remaining, you know, nuclear family and the people they're sponsoring, but they forget to count themselves. So, so it's a bit confusing, but essentially when they're, when you're looking at the size of the family unit, what they're talking about is, you know, if, if it's, if I'm married and I have two kids, let's say, then there's four of us in Canada. And then if I'm sponsoring my parents, then that's another two. And if I have a dependent, uh, if they have a dependent child, which has now been changed, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, effective October of this year. Um, so if if there's a dependent who's under 22, which has changed from under 19, so that it's more generous now because you can be all the way up to being under under 22 years old, then you have to count that person. Uh, and that they can't be married, of course. Uh, they got rid of the thing about being over 22 and still being in school because that right. was just such a difficult thing to be, for the visa offices to handle and, and investigate. But essentially, so so in other words, so it'd be the four of us in the nuclear family, my wife and my two kids. I'm sponsoring my two parents. I have a brother who's under 22 years old. Okay, so now you're talking about seven people. So then you go to the handy chart, and in 2016, let's say, um, the threshold income was 83695 dollars. So, you know, so that's, I guess that's relatively straightforward. The more tricky stuff relates to the government website requirement of having three years of income. And what does that mean? Now, the government was saying that we're not going to just going to trust you on what you say your income is. When you file your taxes, uh, Revenue Canada, the, the, the government tax agency, will, you know, look at what you've put in and then they'll do their own assessment of what they think your income is. And that's called a notice of assessment. And that is what the government wanted to rely on. And so they said that, you know, we're only going to go by the notice of assessments. But the problem is that they opened the program in January and you don't get your notice of assessments until the earliest, I would say around April. Right. And so... This forced people to discount the the year immediately preceding when they wanted to apply. And a lot of people didn't want to do that. So some people applied anyway. And then there was some litigation on this. And to my surprise, um, you know, Justice Gleason looked at the at the at the case and the person was not represented. And Justice Gleason looked at the regulations and it's, he basically said um, that it's, it's about income, and it says for the three years immediately preceding. 
So what, is, what does income mean? I mean, income doesn't mean notice of assessments. It just means what was your income? So now the Department of Justice tried to read in the regulations that you know you have you have to have three years of income for which there are notice of assessments issued by the Canada Revenue Agency. But Justice Gleason looked at the act, the regulations, objectives, operational bulletin, the regulatory impact analysis, et cetera, uh, which is this sort of um, you know um, language analyzing the what the what the government's trying to accomplish when they're coming up with regulations and legislation, and said, look, I'm gonna. I think the answer is here. We have to take the ordinary meaning of immediately preceding, which means you just have to look at the last three years, even if we don't have the notice of assessment for the for the you know the, the year immediately preceding. Uh, now in that case, the Department of Justice then tried to say, well, hold on a second. We want to make a second argument and argue <laughs> that the case wasn't complete because it didn't have the notice of assessments, and he. Um, he didn't buy that either because it wasn't, you know, the case wasn't returned as incomplete. They processed the case. So that's, that's how I read that case. And, um, there was a, another case which, uh, was filed in the federal court after this case. And I, I called the lawyer just prior to this podcast and I said, Hey, what happened to that case? Are they fighting you on it? And, uh, the answer was no. Uh, the department of justice decided to consent, which means that they decided not to fight it and they accepted the ruling in the earlier case. So, uh, and also, by the way, she told me that uh, the Department of Justice indicated that, you know, they're going to be publishing, you know, new mm. guidance on this, uh -huh. um, which is going to be in line with Justice Gleason's case. So, so the bottom line is, uh, what does all this analysis mean? Well, it's, it just means that you don't have to, you, you can file with two notice of assessments and with evidence like your T4s or if you're self-employed, you know, other types of evidence, proof that the money's going to your bank account or, or whatever you have. So you can file um, without the, the three notice of assessments. And you can actually, you know, so for instance, for 2018, you could file with your 2016 and 15 notice of assessments and your T4 for 2017, and that would work. So that's my sense. Hmm. That's, you know, that's a, that's a great development. I'll make sure to put links to these cases in the show notes as well. And uh, obviously okay. that's a significant, um, a significant development because that's always been one of the big issues that people have had is, is trying to, um, figure out a way to use this most current income, which for most families, especially if you're, you know, let's say you're a new, new immigrant or within the, the most recent three or four years, Mm -hmm. Usually your income increases, um, you know, every year. And so mm -hmm. you, you always want to try and include the most recent one that you possibly can. And so this is interesting, very interesting. Well, and it gets even more interesting because, you know, I guess the the issue is, well, what if you put in your T4 and, or what if you are self-employed and you declare your income to do one thing uh, and it turns out that the government ends up issuing a notice of assessment which is lower mm -hmm. and makes and makes it so that you don't qualify. Some people are going to say, well, are they going to catch me? <laughs> yes. And the answer is yes, I think, because, mm -hmm. and, and so I don't think it, there's any point in, in trying to, like, let's say you lost your job or, you know, you moved to a self-employment income in 2017 and, you know, you really don't want to pay all the taxes on it and you think you can get away with just declaring your income to be, high when in fact, you know, you're filing it as low 
and under the threshold requirements. I think the answer there is you're going to get caught because yeah. what's going to happen is they're going to they're just delaying the draw. And this is what I talked to the lawyer about, Laura Best, who had the case where you know which was settled. Mm -hmm. And you know she pointed out to me, you know, the draws are later, so they could just do a draw, you know, within let's say a matter of weeks as to when people as to the cutoff, right? Um, but if they because they don't do that and the draw is drawn out all the way till to April with the documents due in August, by then Yeah, they you know, will be issued. The notice of assessment's yeah. issued, right? So yeah. I think that they're they're kinda getting around it that way. And um you know, in a way it's 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 actually it's good for the government because they, they have the notice of assessments that they want to really verify the true income and it's good for the person who doesn't want to wait essentially four years when they could just be waiting three, which was sort of the intent anyway, right? So I think it's actually a win-win at the end of the day, uh, but you just have to make sure you actually have the income. Exactly. Huh. So, um, all right. So we've covered quite a few different topics here. And, and obviously, uh, as we now have a very, very good idea what some of the issues are on the, the side of, of a sponsor and, and showing that they have sufficient funds, are there any other issues related to applicants within the context of parental, parental sponsorship that sometimes uh, may trip people up? Well, I guess I would just say the only the last sort of thing I would I would comment on is really about the you know denials, right? Like if yes. if you have a refusal, what do you do? And I think that you know if you if you don't meet the income, um, because what happens is a couple of tricks here. I mean. You, you'd have to tick a box that says, even if I don't meet the income, I'd like my case to be forwarded to the visa office anyway. And so if you don't meet your income, you can tick that box, it'll go to the visa office, and the visa office will deny it. And then you have the ability to go to the Immigration Appeal Division. Now, when you're going to the Immigration Appeal Division, it's a hearing de novo, um, and the Federal Court of Appeal in Kalon, uh, a case called Kalon, said that it's a hearing de novo in the broadest possible sense. So I think what that means is that they're able to look at the current situation and reality of your income. So if it takes two to three years, which is what it's taking to get to the Immigration Refugee Board, Immigration Appeal Division of that IRB, um, then at that time, if you can show in the preceding three years as of the date of your hearing, that you meet the income, then, you know, you may win, but you'd have to, you know, you first have to show there's some, some, a basic humanitarian and compassionate threshold, um, and, and argue that, you know, um, that there are compelling reasons why you need to have your parents here. Uh, and I think if you pass that and also meet the income requirements currently, there's a real chance that you'll win your appeal. So one question as we kind of spin that out do you think an applicant, and I'm thinking if it takes three years, then, you know, maybe you just wait because if, if you're not going to get a decision or get before the IED within three years, well, maybe by that time you're actually well, that's meet, exactly meet the right. eligibility yeah. for sponsors. So the question is, um, mm -hmm. would there ever be a situation you think where if you got to the IED and you still hadn't met that minimum income threshold that you could get past it? You know, that you could, you could bring well, in Well, I thought evidence. you were going to ask a different question, which is sort of like strategically... <laughs> yeah. You know, like if if you know, as the IAD process, as it takes longer and longer to get the to the to the immigration and refugee board, um, and as the processing times come down for the parental, yes, you know, is it better just to, you know, apply again yeah. as opposed yeah. to litigate? And exactly. I think that 
But I think then again, I think it depends on you also have to factor in the the randomized process and how unreliable it is. Good point. So, Good you know, point. so I think yes. that if if you can actually get in, let's say in, because there's really no screening currently. So let's say you just randomly do it. You know, you put it you put it in. Right. And then then if you get it, I suppose you could withdraw your appeal, but only if you feel that the government's going to move quicker in uh, yeah, getting before, their processing yeah. like they were in six, 2016, uh -huh. which they aren't in 2017. So I think it'll really depend on the answer to that question. I think it's a, I think it's, uh, you don't lose anything by filling out the randomized, <laughs> you know, uh, questionnaire. So I think you might as well just go ahead and do that. And then I think, let's see how it goes in 2000 for the 2017 cases. If they're processed relatively soon in 2018, I would say, probably drop the appeal but if it's um the case that they're dragging then i would say probably file the appeal mm -hmm. yeah let it ride and so um and i think you know i used to argue that you know at the immigration appeal division that really you didn't have to meet the income requirements currently to be able to argue h and c which is humanitarian and compassion considerations um, you know, we're getting into sort of some legalistic stuff yep. here, but, mm -hmm. but fundamentally, you know, at some point they, the, um, you know, the hearings officers, uh, represented now by Canada Border Service Agency, they started to argue that, look, we're not even going to get to humanitarian factors until you can kind of show me that you meet the income. So if you don't meet the income, it's kind of a non-starter. And I was, I mean, I'd have to review the case law. Like I haven't re like looked at it recently, but, but my feeling was always that they're separate tests, right? Like you can appeal in law yes. and you can appeal in equity. So, mm -hmm. so in my mind, you know, if it's a very compelling case in equity, which is the humanitarian side of things, yeah. then you should be able to talk about it. But again, I haven't reviewed the cases recently to see um, mm -hmm. how, that's, how that, that's gone down, but, yeah. but that's huh. my instinct anyway. Huh. Wow. Well, this is this has been really, really informative, uh, Ravi. And obviously, uh, with your kind suggestions here, I think many of us are going to be somewhat emboldened to be a little bit more, um, I guess, uh, brave in terms of using 2017 data for this upcoming um, application window. Now, have you heard anything about when it's going to open. Will it be, I can't remember. Is it, did they post it? Is they it, haven't it, announced. No, I think it's likely to be January, mm -hmm. but, um, I don't have anything firm. Okay. Well, typically it seems like that's when they open the window up in, in the month of January, at least through that stretch. So it'll be interesting to see what happens here. Indeed. And, uh, <laughs> now, um, I, yeah, I, I really appreciate you coming on here. Now, if we if we have some people who say, "Hey, I need some creative solutions," and I'm looking for this uh, this smart Ravi guy with this great strategy, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and they're looking to track you down, um, I think in the past we'd indicated that email and just through the firm website was the best way to reach you. Is that is that still the case? Yeah, I mean, I'd say well, I mean, my number I could just tell people is four one six eight six six twenty one eighty six and um, you know, otherwise my email is ravijayagans.com. You can just find it on the web. And the, the best way is just to contact me directly. And it's crazy. Although my staff's grown to five now, um, <laughs> I still pick up my own phone and I still answer my own emails and do all that stuff. I think it, it gives me a sense of, um, keeps, keeps the pulse on my practice. Um, and, uh, and keeps us, it gives, gives me a sense of what kind of issues people are dealing with, uh, 
you know, day to day. But it's yeah, I know this has been a real pleasure, Mark. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you really ask good questions. And it's, you know, when you prepare for these podcasts, you drill down a little bit more. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's always a pleasure. And it's always a pleasure to see you. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate your time. And uh, I'm sure we will uh, catch up to each other at the upcoming National CBA uh, conference there. I have, uh, I have the pleasure of being um, connected with uh, Mr. Richard Curland, Esquire, <laughs> <laughs> on, uh, on ATIPS and that whole uh, world of access to information. And so we're going to do that panel. So I'm looking forward to that. And as always, he is a very colorful individual with lots of stories and <laughs> interesting well, takes. You may, I don't know if you know this, but I'm, I'm in charge of the agenda this year. Oh. Agenda co-chair. So besides my responsibility on the executive of the CBA, I, I was, you know, it was basically my responsibility to make sure that the uh, agenda was put together. I have some great help with the past senior chair, Peter Alderman. Yes. And, uh, and the current junior co-chair, uh, Sophia Mirza. But, um, oh, cool. you know, so we've been, we've been putting it together and, uh, and, and picking good speakers and, and you obviously came to mind and you were one of the few, one of the rare that we were able to sort of slot in multiple panels. So, oh. so, uh, that's the kind of flexibility you have in terms of, uh, your expertise. So. Well, that's, uh, I, I, I never, ever shy away from a mic. And so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what makes you say that? <laughs> so I look forward to it. It's, you know, even just going there and attending is, is awesome. So it's, uh, yeah, the CBA is a wonderful organization and our immigration, our national immigration section just does amazing things. And, you know, I will do everything I can through this podcast, which is obviously private and I can say and do whatever I want without restriction. But mm-hmm, one of the mm-hmm. things I will always do is, is lead back to the CBA and the wonderful work that it does. And, and I'm very, very grateful to be a member of that uh, cool organization. So, Great. all right. Well, you take care and thanks so much, Ravi. You too. Take okay, care. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, it's pretty easy to see why I had Ravi join me. He is awesome. And I'm using awesome once again for a good reason, because he was awesome. The insight that he gives, uh, the strategies, especially on um, this whole concept of just going ahead and filing and then rolling the dice, uh, depending on whether you proceed to the IAD or, or whether you um, uh, can, can basically perfect your file uh, with, with proper notices of assessment. Um, and that whole gray area out there, I think many of us will find that very interesting. But I am definitely emboldened to push the envelope, especially with one, one uh, uh, family that I have here uh, where the couple will definitely need the 2017 um, income to be able to meet that threshold for sponsorship. So hopefully this episode was really uh, useful and enjoyable for you. Um, hopefully you didn't mind that rambling at the beginning too much. But uh, this is my podcast and I can do whatever I want, which is really fun. I'm not bound by anything. And and uh, anyway, so I hope you guys enjoyed it. It's, it was a lot of fun for me, this episode. And I want to remind everyone that this is through iTunes as well. So please go on there, rate it, and it just helps with the exposure. It gets it out there a little bit more um, for other people that might be interested in this content. If you have an idea or a suggestion for a future topic, or you yourself would like to come join me, it's, it's a lot of fun, and I'd be more than willing to have you come on share a little bit of uh, uh, information that's useful to all of our listeners and then plug the heck out of you. And that's pretty much how I do it. So uh, I appreciate Ravi for joining and I want to let all of you know 
that uh, there are more podcasts on their way that are going to be great, more episodes. And uh, also, I'll sign off, as I always do, with wishing all of you guys the best as you navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Yeah.